This morning I'd like to um, continue talking about the transformation of the heart and I need to give you a little bit of a disclaimer before we start and that is this sermon today is about, um, it, it's in the character of the Proverbs, okay? What I'm going to be talking to you about are, are principles that are generally true. When I say generally true, it means there may be some exceptions that the Holy Spirit will help us with to the general knowledge of what we're going to talk about today. But scripture's like that. That's what the Proverbs are, right? It's conventional, general wisdom as expressed by God. Um, for example, if I were to tell you, you can start putting up that PowerPoint at any point. If I were to tell you that if you carefully uh, cultivated the soil for your garden and put mulch down, you could get rid of the weeds in your garden. It would be inappropriate for you to think not a single weed will grow, right? There are still going to be some pernicious weeds that are going to grow, some tougher weeds, and there's still going to be a minimum of weeding required, but you will greatly minimize the number of weeds that you have to deal with if you tend and care for your garden. It, it's a, a strategy that is generally true and is very, very helpful if you really want tomatoes. But there still will be some weeds. And so the character of what we're talking about today is of a proverb, if you will. And I'd like to talk about the topic of feelings. Um, we're moving down this uh, continuum of things. You remember the records from last Sundays. We dealt with uh, the first freedom being what we choose to dwell on in our minds. And, and this morning I'm going to take up this whole area of feelings, the things, the emotional responses, the feelings that we deal with and how much they impact us, how much they, they matter to the way we uh, perceive life. And I have to confess that I have recently, rev well, revised my feelings, my thinking in the area of feelings. If you had asked me a year ago, I would have told you that feelings, emotional responses, were neither right nor wrong. They are simply our responses to the things that we encounter. I would have told you that it wasn't your feelings that counted or mattered. It was what you did with those feelings that mattered. We all have a choice regarding the way we will act towards our feelings and the emotions that arise within us. That's what I thought. That's what I believed. But I don't know that I looked deeply enough into the matter. This is, this is what pricked my thinking again. Th these words of Dallas Willard. Feelings live in the front row of our lives like unruly children clamoring for attention. That caught my eye. He went on to say, those who continue to be mastered by their feelings, such as anger, fear, sexual attraction, desire for food, need for looking good, or the residues of woundedness, are typically persons who in their heart of hearts believe that their feelings must be satisfied. I thought about that for a long time. 
And it made me ask the question, what if there's, what if there's more to this story about feelings? What if there is a way to achieve some level of mastery over some of the feelings that I have to deal with? How, how does a person keep from being mastered by their feelings? I mean, some of our emotional responses are really deep. Is it possible to keep from being mastered by those feelings? This is what James 4, 1 says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill, or insult, or lash out, or scream, or you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell within us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. More advice now. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? These are tough words. They're very direct, very basic, very easy to ignore when they get in the way of our feelings, right? But they're pointed and they're difficult and they speak to us at a very fundamental level. This passage of scripture tells us is that one of the reasons we are in conflict with ourselves is that we have desires, wants, goals, deep down inside us that aren't necessarily consistent with each other. These foundational things are things we want. They are things that we believe to be true. They are things we believe to be valuable. They are the stuff of our dreams and the shape of our goals. But the fact that certain ideas or beliefs or desires have become a part of the bedrock of our lives doesn't mean that all are necessarily consistent with one another. And it doesn't mean that all of our values 
aren't consistent with the values of the kingdom of God. James says that if our fundamental desires or opinions are threatened, we lash out at others. Feelings can be the response of inner turmoil. Those feelings, we think, are feelings we ought to master, but we can't always do that because it's very hard to control our feelings. If you've ever tried just by sheer force of will to control your emotions, you know how difficult that is. I remember the morning I was sitting in a hospital waiting room when a maintenance worker stumbled in, opened a nearby closet, and began to complain out loud. And since I was the only person in the room, I assumed he was talking to me, saying, those stupid night maintenance people, would you look at that? Look at that mop. That's horrible. It is full of blood, and they didn't even bother to clean it out. They could have at least had some common courtesy and cleaned out that mop. Not being in the best place emotionally, I responded, I might have more sympathy for you if it wasn't my wife's blood. That wasn't a kind thing to say to the poor guy. He just had a dirty mop. It was going to be hard to clean. But when we're not at our best, when we've had a threat, um, things just sort of bounce out of us. These, these things that we say that are really hard to control, feelings quickly get the best of us. If you try to take on the control of feelings just head on by yourself, you're likely doomed to failure. You may be able to manage feelings when the threat is small or the inconvenience is minor. But sooner or later, like the best New Year's resolutions, your feelings will jump to the front of your mind or out of your mouth before you know what hit you. Once again, let me just inject an important insight before I talk more about the, the issue of mastering your feelings. This is an area, again, for gradual transitions, baby steps. This is an area for slow and steady. This is an area for incremental improvement. This is transformation by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not our work. It is us working in cooperation with his power and his grace. But if we don't believe it's possible, we'll never put the team together and start to work on it. So, instead of simply dealing with the feelings that I have, the goal is to begin to modify the underlying, conviction, underlying conditions and the settled convictions that I have that are inconsistent with the values and principles of the kingdom of God. Because it's those inconsistencies, those inconsistent convictions and conditions that get rise to those negative feelings, and I've got to address them. So let me start with settled convictions. When I say that I believe life ought to be fair, I mean that everyone ought to have an equal opportunity for happiness, perhaps. It might be 
that a settled conviction I have in my life is that life should be fair. If that's your settled conviction, I wonder how that's working for you. I've noticed it doesn't always particularly seem to be fair. It may be that a settled conviction that you have is that the Bible is true. Now that's a great conviction and it's consistent with the values of the kingdom of God. No need to tamper with that. Keep that right in the bedrock of our lives. Now there was a time in our history when some people did not believe that all humans were created equal. That settled conviction, the superiority of a specific race, gave rise to all kinds of evil. And unfortunately, some folks still hold that conviction. The anxiety created by that demonic conviction gives rise to all kinds of demonic behavior. And that's a conviction that is settled in some folks that deserves dynamite. It needs to be blasted out, excavated, removed. Because any responses that hit that conviction are going to shoot up feelings that are inappropriate. And so settled convictions have got to be addressed. There are some folks who believe that our charge to take dominion of the earth implies the right to strip her of her resources and bury trash in every valley and canyon. There are ranges of settled convictions we have. The, the potential list of settled convictions that people have is so long that no catalog could begin to exhaust it. Um, these are things that we humans latch onto to define our existence and to explain our behavior. Our belief in an afterlife is a settled conviction. Our belief that God is loving and just is a settled conviction. Our belief that, that life is a gift to us from God ought to be a settled conviction. The belief that hell is too awful a penalty for anyone to endure and must be avoided at all costs ought to be a settled conviction. Settled convictions are not all religious but they are broad and they shape how we think about our lives and the meaning of our life. In addition to these settled convictions, however, there are also some underlying conditions that greatly shape us. Some of these are things that I believe about myself. I believe that I'm lovable. I don't know that my wife thinks that's always true, but I believe that I'm lovable. I believe that I'm basically good. I believe that I'm successful. I believe that I'm competent in my job. I believe that I'm patient most of the time. I, I believe that I'm strong and have courage. I believe that I'm creative and can solve problems. Or maybe some underlying conditions are not so positive. I feel vulnerable and afraid. I don't feel competent compared to others around me. I feel insecure. I don't like myself. I wish I were like fill in the blank, that person. I can't speak in front of people. I'm weak. I'm not intelligent or not intelligent enough. I'm alone. I'm, I'm without friends or without the friends I need. I'm sickly. I do not have good prospects. I am without hope. 
there is a whole range of these underlying conditions that are shaped by my experiences, by, by my genetic heritage, by the opinions of others, by my own opinions. There's lots of things that shape these underlying conditions. Some may be more or less true. Some may be completely false. But whether true or false, to whatever degree they're true or false, they are real because they impact how I respond to the world. Let me, let me give you an example of how an underlying condition works, okay? I personally believe that I have a very, very good memory. This belief is based, Nancy's already laughing. This belief is based on my educational record. I was able to study for exams easily, spit back what I learned, graduate from high school and college with honors. There was a day when I could have told you the phone numbers of more than 100 people very easily, including numbers of some of my high school friends I hadn't called in 20 years. I know the lyrics to hundreds and hundreds of hymns. Consequently, an underlying condition of mine is that I have a very good memory. It is interesting to me, however, that Nancy and I have very different memories of the same past event. We can talk about a specific event or time in our lives and, and have such opposite recollections of what transpired that I honestly wonder if she were present because it is nothing like what I remember. And remember, my underlying condition is I have an excellent memory. So you can see the stage is set for a conflict of sort. At this point, it's easy for me to be critical or judgmental. But then I heard this blasted podcast recently, um, Malcolm Gladwell, I think it was, who talked about memory and current studies involving memory. He talked about psychologists who, after really large events like 9-11, quickly network with each other across the country and ask eyewitnesses and people who were present 10 questions about how they experienced that event. They quickly write their answers down. And then six months later, they approach them again and ask the same 10 questions. Where were you? What happened? What were you doing? Very concrete, not like feeling questions, but very concrete fact of the matter questions. And then a year, they call them all again. They ask them the same questions, document this information. And then after a year, they talk to them and they show them the answers that they had given to those same questions a year ago. And they don't match. And I don't mean a few don't match, I'm talking way in excess of 50% of the people's answers are not anywhere close. And when confronted with their answers in their, home, in their own handwriting, people say, I don't know why I wrote that, that's not right. I don't know why I wrote that, that's not right. But that was your answer the week it happened. It wasn't, it wasn't so much the fact that this podcast documented how poor our memories really were, documented the fact that we tend to 
grab pieces of events that are in close proximity and create new memories that answer the questions of why and how for us. It wasn't that it helped me see how poor our memories generally were. That wasn't the thing that shook me as the most. What shook me the most was this. It says somehow we humans, for whatever reason, we create these new memories based on the pieces of what happened. And then we genetically infuse them with the highest level of certainty possible so that we tell ourselves we can't conceivably be wrong. That's the piece that was frightening to me. It's not that someone proved to me that my memory was awfully fallible, which was good for me to know, right? But it tipped their hand enough for me to realize that my brain was conspiring to convince me that I was right. What if my memory isn't as great as I think it is? This is the critical part of the whole sermon. If I am going to be able to revise my underlying condition, I need to be able to think about it clearly, to consider it. If I can't pick up that condition and look at it objectively or with the help of another and make some adjustments to what I believe about myself, then nothing can change in me. I will forever be mastered by my feelings. But if I can think straight by the grace of God and with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, remember, what is one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit? To guide us into truth, right? Truth about ourselves. Convict us for the error of our ways. Put us on the straight and narrow path. That's the Holy Spirit's job, and that's what we're talking about here. The Holy Spirit helping us see the truth of ourselves and adjusting settled convictions and, and con underlying conditions. If I can revise the underlying conditions by the grace of God and replace them with more accurate positions, then my response to memory conflict might change from that's not what happened. Were you even there? Two. That's not how I remember it, but you might remember it differently. And I can tell you the internal feeling between those two responses are worlds apart, right? One is judgmental and accusatory. Another is open and cordial, making it possible for dialogue to continue. My feelings about the conflict would change if I honestly left room for someone else to remember differently. And all this depends on whether or not I can think clearly about things without getting immediately defensive and argumentative. This is what Willard says. The prospering of God's cause on earth depends on God's people thinking well. Bluntly, to serve God, we must think straight. 
crooked thinking, unintentional or not, always favors evil. If we are honest, I think we probably have to admit that we're resistant, reluctant to examine those conditions and convictions which are the foundations of our lives. Those settled opinions are hard won, in most cases carefully protected, and our pride will hardly let us admit that we have been wrong about some of our beliefs and convictions. But there's an essential battle that must be fought, a battle against pride, a struggle to embrace humility if we are ever going to master our feelings. Yeah, you know, we teach our kids a song in Sunday school. The wise man builds his house upon the rock, right? This is what we're talking about today. What is that rock? What, what is the nature? What are all the pieces that we've allowed to go into that foundation? And are those pieces consistent with the principles of the kingdom of God? I think there's an epidemic of lousy concrete in spiritual foundations, foundations in Connecticut. I hear lots of shady Christian thinking, argumentative, belligerent Christian communication. That sounds like an oxymoron to me. We're inheriting a peaceful kingdom. Our failure to know what God is really like our failure to understand what the royal law of love requires, our failure to work with the Holy Spirit to see our hearts transformed, destroys the soul and ruins society. We, may, we must be shaped by better things. We need to make sure that our underlying conditions, our subtle convictions, are influenced by the truth of what God is really like as revealed in his word, as opposed to what we heard on radio. We must know what the truth of the requirements of God are to love our neighbor. And if our actions and our convictions and our convictions are not ruled by this preeminent charge of Jesus Christ, which is to love our neighbor, then there are things that need to be rooted out. We must be continually influenced by the truth of the fact that the Holy Spirit, by his power, is transforming us. We can't let any piece of us say, well, this is who I am. You have to take me for who I am. This is the best I can be. We don't want the best you can be. We want the best that God can make you. We want to see his transforming power expressed through your life. If you, if you have not grasped the depth of God's love for you and his passion for you, you will always have cracks in this foundation. This foundation is mortared together by the love of God for you. Every time we take communion, we hold in our hands the symbols of the love of Christ poured out for us. That has to be our foundation. And there can't be anything inconsistent in that foundation with the truth of God's love for us. And our foundation will not be stable if we just don't think God is powerful enough to bring it all off. But he is a mighty God. 
He's a powerful God. And those things must inform, but not just inform the foundation, they police the foundation. Every stone not consistent with those have got to get quarried out and pitched out of there and replaced. Thinking deeply requires us to examine ourselves and especially our responses. I don't know that we can, in an afternoon or in a week, identify all the boulders in the foundations we've created. I don't know that we can articulate all the settled convictions and all the underlying conditions that shape our lives. But I'm convinced that if we just pay attention to our responses, if, if we pay attention to those times when our feelings are about to overwhelm us, if we take notice when we feel we're about to lose control, we can, at that moment, ask the Holy Spirit to help us to get to the root of that particular experience. Remember I said baby steps? This is like one incident at a time. When I feel the whole, when I feel myself getting out of control, or I say, Holy Spirit, what is this about me? And that's the starting place for some steps to approach the current crisis. And it's not just to look at the surface, it's time to look down deep and see what it is that's causing this kind of response. I don't know why it is but I personally get bent out of shape whenever I think someone is attacking the core of the gospel. When someone states a belief or a practice uh, that is clearly inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus, I feel that I have to go on a personal mission to attack that falsehood. It's as if one of my underlying conditions is to defend the gospel, me, personally. Like the gospel is in danger of collapsing if I don't attack the person who's saying that foolish thing. Now there's a difference between standing for the truth and explaining what I believe and standing for the truth and doing my best to show how foolish and stupid anyone else is who doesn't agree with me. See the difference? Attacking someone and making them look verbally stupid is inconsistent with the values of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God isn't weak as if it's going to collapse if I don't defend it well. If I'm attacking, there, there must be some underlying condition that must be examined, some thought modified. And it probably has to do with the kingdom of God value of, of how we treat and respect one another, even folks we disagree with. And so when, when you feel like your feelings are getting the best of you, this is almost like the fireman's creed, it's time to stop, pray, and think. Stop, pray, and think. Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Holy Spirit, is there something in me that's that's generating these feelings, something that is incorrect. Do these feelings make sense? Are they consistent with the values of the kingdom of God? Is there perhaps a stone that needs to be quarried out and reshaped 
so that it conforms with the truth of your word or to the principles of your kingdom or to your mission in the world? You know, some, convic some convictions may be challenged but should never be changed. God's truth is unchanging. God's love and mercy lasts from generation to generation. If those stones are not currently in your foundation, it may just be that you need to add some stones to your foundation. You need some, to add, you need to just shore up the foundation where weaker things have been removed. How, how do you get started in this lifelong process? You remember the baby steps part, right? I've said that, this is the third time now. You pay attention to the feelings so that you can ask where they come from. James said that quarreling comes from the fact that your desires, what you want deep down inside you, have not been surrendered to Christ. You still want what you want. James says we are still preoccupied with satisfying the things our bodies are crying out for. Pleasure, food, security, the things you see other people have, rather than setting our minds on things above. And as long as we are bound and determined to satisfy what our body cries out for, then the resulting actions and feelings will be violent and angry and we'll use inappropriate words and ways in order to lash out. So when we're feeling jealous, when we're feeling angry, when we're feeling insecure, when we're feeling hopeless, it's time to stop, pray, and think. I'm not always the best at stop, pray, and think by myself. I sometimes need to work out even my convictions about myself with a friend. I need a confessor at times. I have a brother pastor up in Nashua that I talk with and meet with regularly. And I will say to him things like, I'm feeling this way. Does this sound defensive to you? Is there, do you think there's more going on than what I'm conscious of? Can you help me reason this out? Is this appropriate? And he has permission to tell me the raw, candid truth about myself. And he sees me enough to know it. I don't say that to diminish the power of the Holy Spirit to assist you, but the Holy Spirit has put us here together to walk to the road to heaven arm in arm. And if you need a brother or a sister confessor, accountability partner, if you like that term better, spiritual mentor, it may take that the more difficult the stone is to mine and excavate. But the fact that the work is hard doesn't mean that it shouldn't be attempted. Baby steps. And now may the peace of Christ guard your hearts. And may you be filled to the fullness of God that his love in you 
would reach out to the world around you who desperately need to know that they are loved by Christ. All this to the glory of God, now and forever. Amen.